I think it's important as we walk into this, um, the song that we just sang, Show Us Christ, in essence defines what Peter wants to happen in a marriage and family. It's that our lives proclaim him and that everything we do and every component of our life proclaims him. And, and so t- this morning, I put marriage and family as the list there. As a husband and wife come together, they make a family unit. And so Peter is in essence, diving into the family discussion here uh, and teaching the churches what needs uh, to take place. Uh, You can disregard certain individuals. I know there's anomalies here, individuals that are bent on destroying the family unit for their own devious motives. But most people, regardless of politics, understand that when you dissolve the family, you dissolve society. There's a plethora of studies and examples that speak Uh, to the damage, especially in a child's life, when that fabric is torn, or let's be honest, never existed, uh, it wreaks havoc. Uh, History is filled with these sad stories, stories of broken homes. And I know the second I mention that word, we all tend to let our mind wander to a more poverty-stricken populace. But actually, as you read through history, there's, there's a plethora of rulers who were shaped by family brokenness, and sadly, it alters their actions in life. It actually shapes and forms who they are. And that's just looking at the children of broken homes. It doesn't take into account how the adults live out their brokenness and how they misfire in society as well. And let's be honest, this world's culture has not been an asset, no matter what culture you look at. Uh, You can move around the world, and even in history, And you can find oppressive, I put in parentheses, horribly ungodly male dominance in societies that belittle the worth of women and girls. Uh, There's places in the world where it's criminal to give a girl an education. But you can come all the way over to the Western world and you have the feminist movement that revolts against any type of biblical family function or headship. All of these are used by Satan to destroy the biblical function of the family and undermine a Christian family's testimony. And what I really want you to to zero in on is as families, we bear the name of Christ. And so really, as Satan manipulates culture and as people follow one extreme or the other or a blend in the middle, it destroys their proclamation of the gospel. And that's the point as Peter is working through godly living. He started back in chapter 2, 11 and 12, the verses, and we have a tendency to split everything up in our minds. Remember, this was a letter, would have been read as a letter flowing straight through. But Peter's work from the broadest context of godly living as you respond to your government through employment, and now he lands on marriage and the family, and he begins his instruction with the wives. And as you can read from the text, it's wives and then husbands. And he's talking about a marriage, but he's also talking about how a family uh, would function. Understand that the main concept that he deals with, with the wives, centers around this idea of submission, which is not new. This is what he's talked about with the government and with employment. So let me read again the text, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. And it's important to understand where he puts those possessive Uh, It's a pronoun, I don't know. I'm not a grammar teacher or an English teacher. Going on, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. 
whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is, and this is, if you're underlining in Scripture, I always mention this, in the sight of God of great price. This is often overlooked, and we'll talk about it. Uh, the wife's actions in a marriage are of high value to God. They're, they're of a great price or extremely important things that he finds precious. Uh, for after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And just as a side note on that, calling him Lord, uh, she did that after she laughed at God. So she was definitely, just so you, you know where that falls a little bit. But diving into this, the first reaction most people have when they read passages about the family from Scripture is that they think, well, that command was easier back then than it is today. God didn't understand what we would be living in, our culture, and how far advanced we have become. Uh, but when you think that, you miss the framework in which they lived. Wives lived in a culture that, as a general rule, demeaned their role. They actually was a society that thought of them as lesser than, though that's not necessarily seen in every echelon of society. And so, as a general rule, the Greco-Roman world would, would view a wife in a lower role, a capacity. Women were often demeaned in that way, though, again, if you read through history and some of the high society ladies, that's not going to be the picture that you get necessarily. But day-to-day general rule, women were not considered equals. And I want to put a note in here. It's a, that perspective, no matter when it occurs in history, is contrary to Scripture. From Genesis all the way through Revelation, the equality of men and women is clearly taught. But ever since the fall, And actually, because of it, men and women have been at odds. Even in Genesis, it talks about the wife desiring the husband's role and the husband basically relinquishing and stepping back. In other words, there's been tension, and it's because of the ugly effects of sin. So I want you to imagine with me a little bit what Peter is talking about. Here's a wife who becomes a believer, and as Peter notes, possibly having a husband that does not obey the word which means that her husband not only is not a believer, but the not obeying is an active rebellion against the gospel. And so if you just close your eyes, well, don't do that. I don't want you to fall asleep right yet. But imagine with me a little bit this idea of a lady who comes to Christ in a society that demeans her and has a husband now that not only doesn't believe, but has rejected. He's actively disobedient to the truth even to the point of making purposeful decisions contrary to Scripture. It is in this potential environment, which we would understand would be quite difficult, that Peter is now talking of living a godly life, how to live out your faith in good works or godly living, how to live a gospel life that can and does speak truth. Now, As we dive into this text, we need to clear up some wrong interpretations of submission. We've dealt with a few of them as we've worked through government and through employment, but things that have been misconstrued through the ages. Submission does not mean that if asked to sin by your husband, you do so. 
It does not mean always agreeing with your husband. I know there's a lot of husbands out there that feel like their wife has to agree with them, then they'd be believing a lie. So they can't do that all the time. It doesn't mean taking abuse or passively permitting unfaithfulness with no recourse. Submission has never meant those things. And then I want to link to something we taught last week, just as our submission to government and employers does not include the absurd or ridiculous, likewise ye wives are not subject to that as well. Peter makes a comparison, and and when you look at this, a wife is not called to do something that is ridiculous or demeaning in that way. I just heard of an illustration, and sadly, this these kind of things have taken place. Uh, I would assume this was years ago, but a preacher is preaching on this passage and calls a wife up and has her bark like a dog because her husband had said to do that. Just so you know, men, we'll chuck you out of church and you won't even hit the ground for another hundred feet. That's ridiculous. That's abusive. That's wrong. And I want us to understand something. Peter is not talking about this petty type of submission that so often becomes the topic of conversation. He is, though, focusing on a submission that is clear what it is and what it accomplishes. Paul noted in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband as unto the Lord. Uh, The command comes from God, and the fulfillment of that command accomplishes his purposes. And just To tie in one more time, God's purposes are not to make a man feel big-headed or powerful. I'll probably say this more than once, but if a man needs that type of submission, he's already not a leader and not a head and really needs to grow in Christ himself before he even needs to think about any of those things. It's important to note, though, when you think about what are call is, as God's speaking in, and I want to make sure we understand this is God's call to the wife, um, to submit yourself and your husband as unto the Lord. It's a command to note is a truly submissive spirit will bear testimony to the truth of the gospel. Understand that. As a wife, as you respond as God has commanded you, as a truly submissive spirit will bear testimony uh, to the gospel. There's a real danger for the wife in believing something that her husband did not following a religion that he did not lead into. Remember the society we're in. They're a lesser than. They can't make a decision. Just her believing in Christ is now an affront to him. It was considered shameful to the husband to have a wife in their culture, to have a wife that would go in a direction that he didn't start or say was okay already. It's seen as potential rebellion by society. The wife pursuing a faith that was not first okayed by the husband. And so you can imagine in that context, an unsaved husband potentially, it doesn't say all of them were unsaved. It just says that there was a chance that there would be one that was that resistant to the word. Uh, His desire to hear her words, especially one that's actively resisting the gospel, would be low. That husband is not interested necessarily in hearing the gospel preached. Yet Peter notes her biblical submission would speak volumes where possibly her words had not gotten through. I put here as a spirit that preached the gospel to a potentially unsaved husband and certainly to an unsaved world. You might say, how in the world does her response to her husband 
her biblical response is God has defined submission and we have to run up the, the ladder to the government and to the employer, what he's talking about. And so I'm hoping we've moved out of the context of these petty things that we often talk about and move to the, what God has called us individually to do. And here is how it was a spirit that was different than the world around them. The Christian wife was responding in submission in a different way. Their priorities were different. Now, Peter hints at it by talking about, now, don't get caught up in braiding the hair and, and the jewelry and the apparel, uh, because the world around them was caught up in outward appearance only. A good wife could make a great accessory, and that sounds a lot like our culture. You see, in their demeaning of them, and you say, well, that doesn't sound like our culture where a woman is less than, but then suddenly you switch over at what was emphasized. If you're going to be a good wife, you're going to do one, two, three, and suddenly we see the objective, I can't even say the word, I'm going to try, um, making an object out of, out of your wife. And that was interesting because that's what we see today. So many women, especially the wealthy, were consumed with what I call as big hair because that's what it was. You piled your hair up. And I, some of you can remember the 80s. Think 80s, but go bigger, or maybe even all the way to the beehive um, error, right? You piled up your hair, and actually the jewels went in your hair, and then the, the apparel was a certain type of clothing, and you were consumed with it. A, a Roman writer, Juvenal, notes this, the attendants will vote on the dressing of the hair as if a question of reputation or of life were at stake. With so many tears does she load, with so many continuous stories does she build up on high her hair. In other words, what he's saying is, our world is consumed, his world, consumed with appearance, with the physical, with the outward. So much so that you would think that someone was going to die if her hair didn't get high enough. And it speaks to the trivial nature of their society, which we can see that linked to our society, can we not? Our society is consumed with the outward appearance, what's right in front of us. I put here, it makes the beehive hairdo tiny by comparison. But the point is this, a Christian wife is not enslaved to the cultural pressure that values a woman solely on how good she looks or does her hair, etc. In other words, as she is connecting in her family, as she is responding as God wants her to, suddenly the response is not just physical appearance or a physical care of a home or all those things, but instead is driving to something way deeper. Sprawl notes this, Peter is telling women not to be caught up in an ostentatious display of beauty because the most beautiful thing about them is their soul. As we look at this idea of submission, because that's the overarching topic that's there, the overarching, the framework. But Peter, as you'll notice, is driving to a depth of character that's going to be there. It was a spirit of depth, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Character is the quality to be valued. Someone concerned with living out Christ-like characteristics in their direct world, and we mention this often, in their sphere of influence. Peter is calling wives to live Christ-like character in their families. It doesn't mean, and this is where people have gone sideways, it doesn't mean you don't get your hair done 
and that you can't do your hair in the current style of the day. Peter's not villainizing the fact that people did their hair and that they piled it high on their head. He's not villainizing jewelry or dressing nice. He's not saying that at all. He's saying it's not to be your worth or where you place all your energy. If you think about it, if, if women were caught up in that idea of outward appearance, then it also doesn't mean that it's just about how many kids you may have. It's not about how spick and span your house may be, or if the meal makes your husband happy. In other words, your worth is not tied up in today's emphasis. See, the submissive spirit is a deep Christian character that is exponentially more profound than the world's passing fancies, whatever they may be. It deals with the eternal and makes the eternal what is valuable. That's why it is, in God's sight, very precious. Because I want you to understand that the wife living out what God's called her to do is not at this petty level of, yes, sir, yeah, well, whatever you want to eat, we'll make sure we eat, and I'll make sure that I dress the way you want me to dress. And I'll make. It's not this, I call petty submissiveness, that is demanded by the man so he can feel like he's in charge. The completely illustration of barking like a dog in public because you prove that you're the big man, which just proves how little you are. It actually speaks to the woman to have a deep, stable spirit that responds as Christ would respond because her perspective is eternal. And so Peter is, is driving these women to see something that their submissive spirit is in service to the gospel, not in service to a man. It's another reminder for whom and to whom you submit. As David Helm writes, the woman living out the pattern of submission through proper adornment of the soul will herself be like Jesus and the righteous because a truly gentle and quiet spirit replicates Jesus's life. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Christ describes himself as meek and lowly in heart. As was just noted, it is a spirit valued by God. The driving reason behind biblical submission, and I add the word biblical because we have misconstrued it so much in our society. We've either made it the biggest evil in the world, or it's this trite, trivial, and everyday nothingness, you have to submit to me. And so I put the word biblical submission, and I hope it drives our mind to the purpose of Scripture, Christ, and His glory, and everything about His gospel. It is emphasized by Christ and lived out by Him. It is a spirit described as meek and quiet. I wanted to find those words because we have also lost touch with what those words mean, especially the word quiet in this context from Greek. Meek speaks of being gentle and mild. Let me give the contrast. You're not crass or brass. So it's, it's not this mousiness. See, we, we associate mild with mousy, this sitting in a corner waiting for your husband to direct you, afraid to make any decision or call. No, mild is a gentle depth that's there. This is not a brass or crass person. Quiet actually speaks of a balanced character, stable and strong. It specifically does not mean silent, by the way. So when a husband's like, you're supposed to be meek and quiet, stable, not, not silent. 
all right? This is interesting. Uh, it's, not, it's not someone who is worked up. It's not characterized by conflicting or turbulent emotions. It is someone that is not fragile in mind or emotions. It is a person who has a grip on their thoughts and feelings, not swayed by culture or shallow emotions. It is a non-reactionary person. It is someone who replicates what Christ looks like. It is a spirit seen in the spiritual and influential women of the past. Think of Ruth, Esther, Mary. Specifically, Peter points to Sarah, the wife of Abraham. As a whole, read the women of old, the holy women of old, and there's not a passive or mousy woman in the group. You find none of them sitting in the corner of life. Instead, we see them engaged, used by God directly in the proclamation and advance of his truth. Sarah, who Peter mentions by name, was the woman through whom God chose to work to make a people for himself. If you've read through Genesis, you know that Abraham and Sarah faced a hardship. She couldn't get pregnant. They were ancient by that, even their descriptions, right? Old. And so they devised their own plan. And so Abraham had a son through Hagar, Ishmael, and that was his new plan. But when you read Scripture, you realize that God did not accept Abraham's plan B of Ishmael. He did not accept another woman's child. No, he says there would be a child born through Sarah. But I want you to note something, and that's why I think Peter mentions the idea of she called him Lord. She, she sowed reverence or respect to his headship in the spiritual realm. All the work she did was done God's way, done in obedience to him as he remains forever their ultimate authority. And as you close out, when, when Sarah's example is followed, when you're following God's path and purpose, wives will overcome fear knowing they do what is right in God's eyes. And I want to trace you all the way back to what I just said earlier on about the society they lived in. A believing wife with a husband who disobeys the word is a wife that would have fear. And God says, but you're doing right, and that will overcome fear. You see, submission is not second place like the world sees it. It's not a lesser than Instead, it is a distinct role given by God to the wife, and as such, is the role of equality. Our world doesn't understand that. They think that if they grab the role, if we have the same role, that equals equality, but that's a lie. That's the lie that's been believed since the fall. You go to Genesis chapter 3, and this whole after the fall desire, I think, I can't remember the, the actual verse, so to look that up, but it says that the woman will desire the role of the husband. And so what was perfectly designed to walk side by side and understand that that's how the picture should be. Well-meaning people love to say you walk and you look like one, but it's the wrong look. You look like one because you're together walking side by side, not behind one another. But what happened with the fall was this switch to have someone else's role. And I'm Peter's really clear about that. The woman has a distinct role, and that is the role of equality. Scripture makes that clear. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
But understand this, it's an act of obedience that's given to your Savior. It is a calling from God that will be used by God to reach your family and beyond that, the world, with the light of the gospel. It is how God has orchestrated for you to bring his truth to light. I want to note something, though. Submission is your obedience. It is the wife's obedience to God's command. And this is important, and it's been missed by too many people. It is not the husband's right or authority to demand it. Look, husbands have enough trouble doing what God's called them to do. But understand this, you are not called to tell your wife to submit. God has called her to submit, and it's her obedience to him that brings it on. It is your, speaking to the wife, obedience as unto the Lord, period. Not, and make sure my husband tells me what to do. The question, though, is this. Will you do as God directed, plain and simple, or will you chase your own agenda or the world's agenda? The world will tell you that biblical submission is a less than, that you're stepping back. You're just as good as a man. You're just like a man. You can be a man. That's what the world says, and it's a big lie. Biblical submission is you stepping into the role that God has designed for you, which is the role of equality. You're not replacing your husband. You're walking beside each other. Because that's how God designed it. And so he's telling us how to respond. Are we going to do as God directed or chase our own agenda? His plan fulfills his purpose. It proclaims his gospel truth. And here's the thing. But do you want his truth broadcast from your life and the testimony of your family's life? Or do you want your truth? You can have your truth, but it's not going to be the truth of the gospel. It's not going to be a truth that God wants people to know and that is redemptive. Now, with that said, we, now, we all know that, that a marriage is made up of two people. A family is made up of two people. And the biblical functioning of the family requires the husband to be obedient to God as well. So the conversation shifts from the wives to the husbands. And here the concept in front of us is the idea of sacrifice and submission. What does it say? Likewise, ye husbands. Well, he's likewising it all the way from government all the way down to what needs to be said. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, we may wonder why six verses for the wife and only one for the husband's. And people have misinterpreted this all the time. I think Peter knows that men have the attention span of a gnat. And so he's given them one verse to try to just, let's hammer this home. The women can handle some depth here. The men, you got to just get them on the one, one shot is all you have. Um, yet they likewise are called to listen and follow what God instructs of them. Because now Peter says to the husband, submit to serve your wife. A submission that requires sacrifice, requires obedience to God's way. It requires subjection of their wants and needs to those of their wives. 
And that's why I come back to the petty demand for submission is actually contrary to what God says the man or the husband is supposed to do. I, as a husband, am called to subject my wants on the altar of, and that's not sinful. Again, understand the same rules apply. It's not for sin. It's not in an abusive or manipulative way, but I concede my wants to hers. It's sacrificial. Now, we have to remember something. The Greco-Roman world devalued a wife. She was often viewed as a piece of property, useful for keeping the house and bearing babies, and of looking good in public. That was the context for a woman. (laughs) And I want you to recognize what Peter is doing here. This one verse, the ones before it, were flipping culture on its head. This one is drastically in contrast to their culture at all. He's saying it's the opposite of what you do. As Paul noted in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. It's hard for us to understand sometimes because we grow up or grew up in a society around the world that's been affected by Christianity. In their time, humility was not considered a characteristic that you wanted. Humility in their mind was defeat. Pride was what you wanted. And even our lost world understands the danger of pride, but they did not. So you're, you're walking to a society where the idea of humbling yourself would literally be like you giving up. You're quitting when you're humble. And so into this context, understand how countercultural this becomes. Peter gets to the point and shows that the husband, and, and here's the idea of what his spirit looks like, a truly sacrificial spirit preaches the gospel. This sacrifice, though, takes place on the daily level because there's a host of husbands that said, I would die for my wife. I'd catch a bullet for my wife. I would fight the armies of of Genghis Khan for my wife. Great. How about helping on a daily level? How about sacrificing daily? Because that's exactly what Peter's talking about. It unfolds in our everyday activities and priorities. So Peter gets kind of specific And I'm going to give a couple, uh, actually three, so more than a couple, a few uh, things here. One, be considerate. That's the meaning of according to knowledge. How does my sacrificial life that that is following what God wants a husband to do, how does that look on a very practical level? Because that's what Peter wants us to get to. Be considerate. We proclaim the gospel truth when we daily put her needs above our needs. One writer notes this, it is being sensitive and considering the wife's deepest physical and emotional needs. Be considerate. According to knowledge. In other words, you have to move your priorities, your thinking from yourself to your wife. You're sacrificing you for her. You're putting thought into it. He goes on, and I say the word, be protective, giving honor as unto the weaker vessel. And here Peter has in mind physical strength. It is not mental function or ability. That's a general principle. I know it's not always the case, but the general truth is this. The husband is typically stronger than the wife. In the context of each marriage, because some of you are like, look at that weak guy. I think my wife could beat him up. That's fine. That's your wife beating him up. But can your wife beat you up kind of idea? Who's the stronger one? And generally, the husband is typically stronger than the wife. That is 
that is biological. I know that that's something, oh, it's taboo, and I'm saying something that the world hates. It's a truth. There's actually been studies done by plenty of people to prove this context. And God now says that strength is to be used for your wife's protection, used in the day-to-day to facilitate life. Let me get practical. Guys need to step up and pick up things. Use what we've been given in the service of our wives, not as a slave. The wife doesn't say, pick that up, you're stronger. Move that, you're stronger. Do that, you're stronger. The idea is the husband is saying, I I know what God has instructed me, and sacrificially I'm going to serve my wife as I've been given something that's to be used in that way. Physical sacrifice, giving protection and provision. That's one of the reasons why it is good for the husband to go out and work, to provide, to take care of. You see, a truly serving spirit emulates Christ's life, which means this, we must be unified. We are heirs together of the grace of life. I, if you're a husband, I want you to pause for a second And this is it. This is the one thing that we've neglected over and over again. But I want you to hear it multiple times. The unity of the family is your responsibility. It's your fault when it's not unified. It is your job. You've been called to do this. We have our role, which is leadership and headship. The scripture never runs from that, nor should we as believers run from that. The husband is to be the head of the home. He's supposed to lead, and he's supposed to lead spiritually, but it is not a domineering role. That equal role, and it's equal, is commanded by God to be used for unity, reminding us that we are equals in Christ. Our God-given role is not to be manipulated for status or sway. We are called in our role to provide companionship And we, men, are responsible for the unity in our marriages. How many mother-in-law jokes are there? Don't start counting. Don't even Google it. It It's going to overwhelm you. And oftentimes, is it not the joke refers to a man will talk about his mother-in-law, make all the references to it, and all the disunity of blaming on my wife's family to do that. But here's what I want us to understand. All the jokes in, in culture set aside. As a husband, I am responsible for the unity with my mother-in-law and with my in-laws. That's not my wife's family that she has to deal with. It is my job, not my job to tell my, my in-laws what to do, but instead my job to make sure there's unity in the family. That's my job. So if I have disunity with the in-laws, that's on me. Now, when we're in an argument, what do we typically do? I always tell Heather, wow, you're acting like a reed. That goes over really well. (laughs) If you're getting married, never use that one. (laughs) Never throw out the maiden name. Never toss that. That just doesn't work. Now, I have persisted for 20 years to do this because it's going to work someday. But the idea is this, and I want to drive this point home. In the role of leadership, In the role of headship, I, as a husband, am responsible, accountable to God for the unity in my family. If there is 
And I'm going to separate the whole in-law question. I'm going to drive right back to the family unit because we come together as family. If Heather and I have a disagreement, who is responsible to restore that unity? I am. That is not in a sinful way. If there is a problem, it's not me saying, well, you do whatever sin you want because I need to have unity. Unity is not at any cost. It's at God's terms. But it is my driving priority to restore that unity. And just pause for a second and ask yourself this. Is that really typify a family? Who is usually the most motivated to restore unity in a family? I think all of us would think the mom, the wife. And that's the role reversal, actually. That is us as men abdicating our role and giving it to the wife. And the fault lies with us because we should make a priority for that. Why is that a priority? And that's when, when uh, Peter closes this out. The consequence is high and on us. Our prayers are hindered. And I want you to understand what, what that is saying. MacArthur notes this about this. That is severe. It is the cutting off the divine blessing, which shows how critical is a Christian husband's loving care of their partners in this grace of life. It tells us how serious God is about unity in the family and upon whom he places the responsibility. And you can see that on whom he places the consequences. The husband. Men, we're called to a sacrificial serving of our spouses, to be considerate, to be protective, and be unified. That is our command regardless of our wives' actions. I would lead. We'd be unified if she'd submit. That's convenient. I'd do my job. She does her job. No. Too many Christian men have excused their behavior because of their wife's supposed behavior. And just as the wife is called to submit because of the Lord, we also as men are commanded to sacrifice for them, emulating our Lord regardless of how our wife is responding and her behavior. The question, though, is, Are we going to make excuses or will we step up and take responsibility? What has happened through the ages and is typified by that ridiculous example of that preacher who shouldn't be behind a pulpit ever in their life is how petty we become because we want the power and we don't want the responsibility. We are called to step up into the role of responsibility You don't need to tell your wife how to dress and tell her how to cook. Don't tell her how to cook, how to clean. I had a friend of mine, uh, used to be a friend, can't associate with these kind of people. Um, But we both got married similar times, and he had the wisdom uh, to reflect on his wife's cleaning of the bathroom. And so for the past 20 years, he's been cleaning bathrooms. So just... (laughs) This is, all, this is all free advice. You know, Chloe, you can get Silas to clean the bathrooms. Just let him make one comment, and there he is. He's, he's stuck forever uh, doing that. It's not about us stepping up and critiquing and attacking and telling everyone what to do. It's about us stepping up and being responsible and understanding something. Everyone knows, even though you might put a false front, when there's not unity in a marriage. And that tension will not preach the gospel. And as a husband, we're responsible to make sure there's unity in the marriage so that we can glorify Christ. 
Will we live out our role of consideration, protection, and unity in our marriages for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? See, men and women, how we live as husband and wife, how we function as Christian families, because I'm going to come back to that. When a man leaves his father and mother and are joined together, that's a family unit. They don't become a family with the blessing of children. They become a family because they come together and make a family unit. So as he talks about the functioning of the family, understand this, as believers, we come together and our marriages, our families are to proclaim his gospel truth. But sadly, too often it's being used as a distraction from gospel truth. So whether we're going to preach the gospel or distract from the gospel will depend on how obedient we are to his commands and to whom we give our ultimate allegiance. I'm going to promise you this, not as a marriage counseling session, but uh, your wife will fail you. And wives, I guarantee you, your husbands will fail you. And if your allegiance is tied to their success, you will not have any allegiance. But when your ultimate allegiance, when your ultimate authority is Christ, that's what directs us to respond and walk in the ways he's called us to walk as equals in distinctive roles, because that's actually where equality rests. The gospel, and I want you to realize this, I started with this, we'll end with it. The gospel is still the main point. Your family is to be used to proclaim the gospel, and it does when it's lived according to God's principles. You proclaim him when you live as he commands. Now, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come and study your word in a, in a passage that has, uh, through the ages, been difficult for uh, people to, to <coughs> understand, but really difficult to actually apply biblically. You've made it crystal clear. We know what we're called to do. But no matter where we land in history or culture, it seems the world is on one end or the other. Because Satan does not desire Christian families functioning in a biblical way. I ask that we as Christian families have the courage uh, to live for you, to make difficult decisions, to do the things that maybe go against how we feel, our emotions in the moment, but instead as we dive into your word and understand each of our roles that will fulfill those for your glory. And we recognize that as we live for your glory, obedient to your commands, sacrificing our emotions or our preferences for your priorities and your purpose, that we then can be used to proclaim your truth to the world around us. I ask that our families proclaim the truth in in this community and around the world that we will function as biblical families and we will make a priority your glory and not our own. In your precious and holy name, amen.